Welcome to Fintech Insider Focus in association with Visa. Our once insular world of financial services is now a global phenomenon, and there are people everywhere opening up new markets and discovering really new challenges like never before. In this strand of Fintech Insider, we take a burning question from financial services across the globe and try and put it under the microscope with explainers, expert panels, and in-depth interviews, all to bring the global community into focus. See what we did there. This month, the question we're getting our heads around is, what does effective financial inclusion look like in the US? Now, there's lots to unpack here, so maybe let me give you a little bit of context before we dive in. The conversation around the unbanked and underbanked is usually reserved for emerging markets such as Brazil or Egypt or or India. But as the World Bank defines it, financial inclusion is about the system where individuals and businesses have access to useful and affordable financial products and services that meet their needs. And this is delivered in a responsible and sustainable way. Putting it loosely, there is no market anywhere that has actually accomplished that mission for anybody just yet. And with an estimated 7 million households in the US where no member of the family has a bank account, there is still a huge amount of work to do, even in the biggest economies. To talk about financial inclusion, you also have to reflect on why exclusion exists in the first place. Now, in the US of A, the barriers have often been down to low-income people or, or people of color, among other things. Now, historically, this has led to communities attempting to pull resources or or build something for themselves. In fact, even back into 1888, Capital Savings Bank in Washington, D.C. became the first bank operated by African-Americans, and more than 130 black-owned banks opened over the next 50 years, providing capital to black entrepreneurs, businesses, and prospective homeowners. But Following the Great Depression, and without the same backing as the established players in the market, we've seen those numbers drastically decline into the modern era. An article in 2016 in Ebony magazine put this down to really the the cost of doing business, the financial instability in, in their communities, and really counterproductive federal policies all have created overwhelming challenges for those businesses. In fact, according to the most recent figures from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, a bit of a mouthful, less than 1% of all FDIC-insured banks in America are considered black-owned today. So fundamentally, can we rectify this, this wrong? Can we get some of those 7 million U.S. unbanked households plugged into the grid, into the, the, the normal financial services system. And now, a, a new generation of players are, are trying and, and succeeding to change the status quo. From Greenwood's banking offered directly aimed at African Americans, to Cheese, a, a newly launched digital bank aimed at Asian Americans, to mortgage provider Maxwell's fully integrated Spanish language application service. But how do we make this change stick? Well, we'll get into that after a quick message from Visa. Visa's FinTech Fast Track program is streamlining the onboarding process for FinTechs, enabling them to gain access to Visa's powerful capabilities and network. Visa and their enablement partners help FinTechs launch and scale cards, virtual credentials, and disbursement programs. To learn more, visit partner.visa.com.
Welcome back to FinTech Insider Focus. Uh, we want to take this conversation a little bit wider. So we put together a panel of experts to really dig into the question, what does effective financial inclusion look like in the US? First off, we have my FinTech Insider Focus co-host for today, Erin Purcell, who is the Vice President, North America FinTech and New Business Development at Visa. Erin, I, I joked before we started, you've got like the most impressive job title I've ever heard of. So like uh, super, super cool job. T- tell us a little bit more about what you do at Visa. Yeah, sure. Well, first off, thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited to be here. So I lead new business development here in the U.S. And I'm focused specifically on building new relationships with fintechs. Um, I've been at Visa now for a little over 17 years, so I've seen a ton of change in the payment industry overall, and, um, and you and I were talking a little bit about this. I can honestly say these are some of the most exciting and dynamic times in payments. So it's always exciting, it's always challenging, it's fun, and frankly, like, I'm never bored. <laughs> Very cool. I think we've got people lining up at Visa's job application website like, as we as we speak at, speak at that point. But I, I agree, it's the best time to work in, in fintech for sure. Um, to, to sort of talk a little bit uh, about this as well, we've got a, a great guest to, to, to join us. So uh, we've got Sheena Allen, who is founder of Capway. Uh, Sheena, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining us over your lunchtime, I believe. So, uh, But uh, what, what should anybody else know about Capway and, and yourself? Well, first, thank you for having me. Um, if I had to say, well, one thing to know about me, um, this is my second startup, but this startup is very special to me because it will, it has allowed me to mix in my personal um, background along with my professional background. So my experience in tech from my first startup with my, once again, my personal background, which is being from Mississippi, which has Unfortunately, the highest population of unbanked, underbanked is also known as the poorest state um, in the United States. And I've been able to kind of marry those two to build an impactful company. So if there was like one thing I would want people to know between the two backgrounds, it would be that. Very cool. And and how is, is Capway looking to address that? What, what do you guys bring to the market? You know, when we first start this company, so the name itself stands for a new way of doing capital. That's what Capway actually means. Um, the original idea for the company was I wanted to build a digital bank for unbanked and underbanked was, was the original premise of the company. Um, but we started this in 2019. And then, of course, as we know, 2020, the pandemic hit. Um, and we kind of looked up and we realized that everybody wanted to be a digital bank. And also that the, just the world of digital transactions also was, was changing. You couldn't walk into a bank branch. So everybody technically had to go to digital transactions or some form of digital banking. And so the shift that we made was two things. One was we're not going to pull away from digital banking, but if, even if I bank you as someone who um, has been excluded from traditional banking, give you a debit card is only one part of the journey. And so the second part of that came to be how do we actually build an ecosystem? Um, and the ecosystem as a for-profit company, you know, just to be honest, is you still have to make money while making impact. And so we felt figured out ways to build an ecosystem that we can make impact internal and external of Capway. And we can do that by making money, by also not only building these consumer products, but by building a lot of IP and technology in-house that we could use throughout an ecosystem of anybody that was truly trying to target and change this, this audience. Very, very cool. I mean, it's, uh, uh, like you say, the the talk of, you know, unbanked, underbanked, actually 
I mean, that's a, this isn't a, a tiny little niche, right? This is a, a, a huge population of people in that way. And, and actually, you know, we, we talk at 11FS often about the, the underserved, the overcharged, the overwhelmed. And actually, I mean, there's a lot of people in those categories in this economic times globally. So, uh, but we'll, we'll kind of come to that a little bit more as we go into this conversation, because it's a, a great sort of starting point for, for kind of where we'll get to. Before we do dive in, I, I want to remind all the listeners, the views and opinions on the panel uh, are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies that they're representing. As always, nothing we say should be taken as tax advice, uh, financial legal advice, or investment advice. Do your own research. It's probably very sensible to do that. Um, Definitely don't take investment advice off of me. Uh, All right. With that said, let's get into the discussion. So maybe, Erin, let's start with you. And this is a a biggie, I'm not going to lie. Like, as far as opening question salvos go. Uh, I mean, how does Visa commit to empowering those who are underrepresented? Because that's a, I mean, again, that's a big question, right, to, to, to kick us off with, but give us a go. Yeah, no, it, it is a big question. I have lots of different ways to potentially answer. Um, and the first thing I'd say is, you know, we have a number of different initiatives across the company um, based on our attempt at uplifting everyone, everywhere, So, and especially those that are underrepresented. Um, you know, our first objective is to always lead with our purpose all the time. And so this isn't just about responding to a moment in time like uh, the murder of George Floyd, but it's really about looking to empower all people always, all of the time. And we've been doing this for a very, very long time. Um, I'll give you two uh, tangible examples. One, I, I mentioned that I've, I've been doing this for quite a long time. And, you know, my foray into payments, I started out in prepaid. And it was a, a brand new sort of product segment. And predominantly, what we were seeing was that prepaid cards were providing an opportunity specifically for the unbanked and underserved to become a bigger part of the financial mainstream. Um in the U.S., when you had a, a, a large portion of the population that were um, not able to get banking relationships, they couldn't get debit cards and they couldn't get credit cards, prepaid cards and getting access to a financial um, instrument was bringing these underserved and, and often minority communities into the financial mainstream. Um, so that's an example of one way that we, you know, Visa has been at this for a very, very long time with our solution. Um, second example that I give you, a really tangible example and one that's very um, personal to me, is I have the opportunity to lead a group um, of folks on my team, a subset of my new business team, to wake up every single day thinking about how we can best support minority communities through our relationship with fintechs. And so our relationship, for example, with Sheena and, and her company is an example of this. Very, very cool. And and I mean, Sheena, you touched on this a second ago in terms of, you know, uh, near banked or unbanked. Uh, I mean, what does that actually look like in the US for a, we've got a kind of global uh, listenership to, to this podcast. Actually, you know, that that means different things in different geographies in terms of the, to, to Aaron's point, in terms of, you know, access to financial services or crazy KYC processes that makes it prohibitive to people even to get into the system or, you know, is that in education? That, like, where, where, what does that mean in the context of, of what you're, uh, you're looking to address? Yeah, you know, at Capway, we've, we've always had uh, an international goal 
for what we're building. But of course, he wanted to start at home. So we want to start in the U.S. And interestingly enough, when I would when I would pitch a lot of times, because mind you, you know, for context at Capway now, our main thing, our main goal is how do we create financial access opportunities for everyone? Kind of to, to Aaron's point. Um, but when we say everyone, what that means is if you're unbanked, underbanked, underserved, 1860, make 40,000 or 80,000, how can you come to a financial service and feel like you're going to get that same opportunity? Whereas you might not feel that way when you walk into a bank branch or to someone else. And that's a, that's what we want to be able to give people that feeling at Capway. Uh, but when I first started pitching, more so talking strictly on unbanked and underbanked, a lot of investors was like, this is not a U.S. problem. Like nobody in the U.S. is like, everybody in the U.S. has a bank account. Like this is not an issue. Um, I honestly remember an investor asking me if I made up the word unbanked. Uh, it will forever stick with me. And so a lot of people do think, and a lot of investors honestly say, hey, this is this is a problem you should be thinking about from an international perspective, not, not a domestic or, or a U.S. perspective. And so I end up having to bring in my, personal and having to show them personal experiences of, hey, I can drive you through the Delta of Mississippi for 30 minutes to an hour and you're never going to see a bank. Or you're going to go to my town in Terry, Mississippi, which is in central Mississippi, right outside of the capital Jackson. I can take you down Ellis Avenue and you'll see one local bank and you're going to see 16 predatory options, payday lending, check cashing. Um, and I would say the most interesting part of this is after the pandemic hit in March of 2020, and after the very first stimulus checks went out in the United States, a lot of investors, even just from a just technology, would actually email me and said, hey, we're now seeing the government talk about a fourth of Americans can't get their stimulus check because they can't get it our direct deposit because they don't have bank accounts. And it's unfortunate, but the pandemic opened the eyes to a lot of people in America who for some reason thought, Everybody in America was middle class and had bank accounts. And so um, I preached it in, in 2019, but. <laughs> yeah, you, you surprised me. Like investors with lots of money think everybody else has lots of money. Like, uh, like shock, you know, it's, but it's uh, it's strange getting out of that. And, and I, I guess this is a big part of it more broadly is like financial services needs to get out of its own way a little bit to realize that not everybody who is a banker is a typical customer. And, uh, you know, often we have these conversations with banks around the world where it's like, yeah, look, the experience of the CEO is not like the brutal realities of day-to-day -day lives of like normal people, right? And uh, to your point, Sheena, when you look at the um, the statistics, actually, we see one from FDIC said, so it's it's 4.5% of US households are unbanked. And that sounds like, you're like, look, if I got 95% on a test, I'd be feeling like I was doing pretty well. But when you say that's like 6 million people, like that's crazy, you know? So, and the, the challenges, as you say, is um, just being on the periphery of financial services, you know, just outside of that bubble can cause just insane amounts of problems on a day-to-day -day basis, right? This stimulus check is a, is a good example of that. But mortgages, you know, like actually, you know, all of these things, every, everything to be, you know, included in, you know, what would be air quotes on a podcast, normal, don't work very well. But, you know, being in a, in a normal sort of societal environment makes it really difficult, doesn't it? Yeah. And people have to understand that unbanked is only four to 5% of households, but underbanked is even a bigger percentage. And a lot of times people 
are kind of on that thin line of unbanked and underbanked. Because you have to understand, people are considered underbanked if they have a credit union or maybe they're using a prepay, but they're still using alternative financial services to attempt to make you know life go by day to day. And so it's a very thin line in certain aspects of unbanked and underbanked. If you look at those numbers together, it's even bigger. And then you have this next generation, Gen Z, which I have niece and nephews who are uh, Gen Z and... Good gosh, they have no clue what it means to walk inside of a bank branch. And so they are not unbanked, they're underbanked, but in the sense of traditional banking, they are underserved because they're in a whole different category of ball game than what it was when, you know, we walked into a bank branch at 18. That is not happening for the, yeah. the 18-year-old <laughs> today. And so the world of unbanked, underserved, overlooked, this this whole modern day banking or payments is so different from the traditional way that I think that's what people get lost at when you start talking about underserved. And I think that's something that Aaron probably can say, even at Visa, this next generation is just as a part of like figuring out the puzzle as traditional unbanked and underbanked. So so I guess, look, this is not a, this is not a new thing, right? You know, like actually this is, is this something that you think digital though and the way in which digital could engage with people, you know, has the potential to, to change that. And I guess this isn't just a, um, you know, funky KYC processes or like difficulty of access points. You know, everybody's got a smartphone, you know, proliferation of digital data communications is better than ever before, you know, and uh, that's the same in Mississippi as it is in Manhattan in terms of like uh, connectivity for those things. But I mean, is there something I guess deeper to this though, because we've we've seen the you know the Biden administration has signed a, an executive order making support for racial equality with underserved communities a top priority. But like, is that just sort of is that just words? Like, is actually anything is actually anything changing at this stage? Well, I mean, I I just say um, you, you made the point about digital financial services being more prolific um, across the world. Really, I think that enabling individuals with a digital financial instrument is completely game-changing, right? Like underserved, unbanked, people who purposely choose not to align themselves with a traditional bank, all of those things, like the game has completely changed with uh, digital enablement of financial services. Um, and I think, you know, we, we continue to look for creative ways to innovate um, with our network solutions and um, alongside of our partners who are really doing much of the heavy lifting and who have, you know, deep roots into minority uh, communities and underserved communities. And they are the ones that are doing, you know, a lot of the heavy lifting to bring these digital solutions into the market and in the hands of individuals. Um, I think that we are now living in a day an age where we have much more of an opportunity to change the trajectory of people's lives with digital solutions and creative solutions that are solving, you know, some systemic issues to getting access to credit, to um, to just having a, a basic financial services tool in a digital wallet. Um, so, I mean, I think we, it's just very exciting times and I think we're positioned very well as in, you know, um, in financial services to solve some of these problems that maybe we weren't um, even five, 10 years ago. Definitely. Uh, I think definitely from a, a speed of change and a 
you know, ease of access, you know, and there's there's an element of democratization there, I guess, in that sense, isn't there, in terms of access to services. But, you know, I, I guess we're sort of talking about two separate things in terms of, you know, inclusion in the system, but is the system inherently inclusive, which sounds like, that, I, feel, I feel like I should work in marketing at this stage. That sounds like some sort of weird marketing slogan, <laughs> but, uh, but, but if the... But if the system is not inherently inclusive in that sense, and, you know, we can start talking about credit scoring or different things that are happening or, you know, uh, and actually for me, that's almost, uh, you know, do do people really want to be included in a system that's not reflecting them to a certain degree? So, I mean, Sheena, you sort of talk about walking into a, a branch. I mean, actually, the the challenges that that can face is is broad, isn't it? Yeah, so I mean, it it definitely is very, very a deep rooted issue. Um, I mean, if you're talking as far as minorities in this in this country, as far as the U.S. in itself, you're talking all the way back to slavery. Um, probably one of the best books I've ever read has it's called The Color of Money. Um, without question, a book I would recommend to anyone to read. But it's it goes back to even being deeply rooted to. I mean, I, I think about my grandmother and my my dad who is sixty five. Um, trying to convince my dad to download an app, even my own, um, <laughs> <laughs> was like pulling teeth because it's like they're so, you know, it's the, it, Aaron actually alluded to this. They don't want to be part of the system to some degree. They don't trust the system. So I'm going to keep my money in my house because I don't even trust you to, to take care of my money because I've been discriminated against so much that I don't even trust you. And so, and if I do use your bank branch, I want to be able to walk in, look at you in the face, have a conversation. Like, that's what my grandmother wants to do. Like, my dad wants to do that. So you tell them, no, download the app, and they like, do this. They're like, uh, no. So you have that issue. You have the banking desert issue. Banking deserts. We talk about food deserts across the country. I mean, across the, uh, the, the nation. You know, India, throughout Africa, throughout the Latin, like, America, we have these food desert issues that we talk about all the time, but we don't talk about banking deserts. Banking deserts are just as prominent as food deserts. So you have that issue where there is no bank branch to walk into. Well, d- d- double click on that for me. Sorry, Sheena. So like uh, bank deserts or, or, or food deserts. What, what do you mean by that? Sorry. That, so a food desert, for example, would be that there is no grocery store within probably 30, mi- 30 to 60 miles of where I live. So the way that I get my food is I'm going to go to the convenience store or the bodega if I'm like in a New York and I'm just going to literally I'm living off of the eggs that's sold in the bodega or I'm living off the chips that I'm getting from the convenience store. Now, on the other side of that, that goes to money. So a banking desert is when you are living based off where you live, you can drive 30 miles, 60 miles, and you're never going to see a bank branch. Now, what has happened is even the banks that have left those communities, a lot of times smaller banks move in, your CDFIs, your MDIs. But then the issue to that, which is why I say it's deeply rooted, is that those banks don't have the technology to keep up with today's digital transactions. If you go to a Black-owned bank today and ask them what is their biggest issue, they're going to tell you technology. They don't have the money. They don't have the infrastructure to go with technology to keep up with fintechs today. So the problem is very, very deeply rooted. It's very layered. Yeah. And there's no shortage of them across the entirety of the U.S., right? It's, uh, was it something like 7,000 FIs 
uh, you know, considered sort of community bank type organizations across the US. That's a that's a huge number of them, which, as you say, together, you know, rivals the the top five, you know, big banks in terms of like the the scale of, of coverage that they would have. But the the ability to to invest in and compete, you know, like Wells Fargo's Bank of America's budgets are a little bit bigger, aren't they, in terms of uh, being able to do these things. So, um, but that, I mean, that's an interesting challenge, isn't it? In in that way, I, I guess. Look, how much of this, if you stand up and go 6% of the population doesn't have a bank account, I mean, how much of this and how much of the responsibility to try and uh, address this problem sort of sits with, you know, either from a, a government perspective or, or with the regulator to to create or better barriers of entry? I don't want to say lowering the barrier of entry because that's never really a good thing in a, a regulated industry. But I mean, Erin, you, you touched a little bit on things like prepaid cards. And we've seen we've seen that as a, a great gateway for building credit history and gaining access to systems uh, in various different countries around the world. But is that the way in which you see that almost like the gateway into, into more traditional financial services? So it could prepaid or other creative solutions be a gateway into the financial mainstream? I, I think absolutely. Um, and, and I think um, like the way that I sort of interpret maybe some of what you're asking is like, whose responsibility is it to really help change the game and drive inclusion, right? Um, it, it, like, is it, is it really the responsibility of regulators? Is it the responsibility of business? Um, is it the responsibility of um, society? Like, and I think, the answer is yes, all of it, right? Like it's super complicated. There's so many different ways to tackle it and different perspectives. Um, and I, I think, you know, there are some responsibilities, I, I believe, of the financial services industry to, um, as I said, wake up every day thinking about not just a traditional bank consumer, but also how do we remove roadblocks and, and build uh, solutions and create an environment for our clients such that they can help drive inclusion for individuals, right? So like, I, I think I'd like to think it's partly Visa's responsibility to come up with creative ideas to do that. I think it's partners like Sheena to come up with creative use cases and build businesses and, and my responsibility to help support her how I can. Um, and I think government and, and you know, and regulation can help drive some of that as well. Um, so I think it's a, it's a mixed bag and it's, it's sort of like, you know, everyone's responsibility to do their part, um, to help drive change. Yeah. I guess coming back to something you said earlier on, Sheena, and again, you know, I've, uh, for, for my sins had lots of conversations with, you know, big global banks about these types of things as well. And the, the rubber really hits the road when actually people go, okay, well, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to bank more people. You know, we'd love to support, you know, bottom of the pyramid. Um, but it costs us like $200 to run an account each year. So like, if this doesn't make money, is it marketing? Like, is this a marketing thing? But but you sort of touched on it earlier on that actually, you've got to find the doing a good thing has to figure out a way of being a good business model as well, right? Because if you can make that happen, then this works at a large scale. And I guess a big part of that is 
being a bit more creative with the the way in which you bring community together, the way in which you bring that that marketplace around these opportunities, but equally not doing it with like really ridiculously old technology that you've got to kind of, you know, deal with. So, so how much, I guess, from the benefit of you starting from scratch from a technological perspective, but, but also through not just being bound by traditional financial services business models, have you really been able to get to this model? Yeah, you know, one thing about being a startup and this this fintech space is at Capway, we can do things that Chase just can't do. If we're just being honest, I'm not giving them a pass, but there are things that that we can do at Capway that Erin's not going to be able to do it at Visa because she has to go through 20 million different red pieces of red tape to get, you know, the language changed on something. Like, I, 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 so I, I understand that it is a huge difference in being a startup in the fintech versus being someone who is such a dominant, huge player like a Chase, a Wells Fargo, a Visa, or whatever the case. Um, but I do think the issue that that it comes down to, um, I, I'm realistic. I, I see both sides, but I think there's a middle ground. So I see the side of saying, as a company, as a financial company, as a, as a for-profit financial service company, you have to make money. And that's the same reason for us, like I said earlier, we have an international you know, mission for, for Capway. We don't, we don't bank white, black, green. We, we bank green. We don't, oh, young, like it's our focus is green because that's the reality of building a company. Now, as a black woman, as a black female, it's parts of my company where I'm always in my mind, how do I uplift my community? How do I uplift minorities? 100%. And I think by, because of that, because of my background of being from Terry, Mississippi, uh, and knowing that community so well, I'm able to bring a personal perspective and experience into a professional setting that I think a lot of the big banks also are missing. A lot of people who look like me are not at the table to even be able to give that perspective to say that's not going to work. But my argument on the other side of what we found creative to be able to do is the argument of saying, well, the lower uh, to moderate income, there's no money there. So then I go pull stats. Well, Chase, how much money did you make from overdraft last year? How much money did you make from bounce checks? How much money did you make from ATMs? How much money did the predatory economy make last year? Yes, it's predatory, which is why they make so much money, but how much money did they make? So yes, I understand the net worth of an average black family. I understand the net worth of an of an average brown family. And I'm 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 a numbers person. So I a hundred percent understand and how that plays into being a for-profit company. But as a fintech and being able to ask more for Forgiveness and permission <laughs> sometimes um, that they cannot do with the bigger guys. Um, there's creative ways to make money and make impact. And I think that's the that's our secret sauce at Capway. I mean, it's an interesting point, that, isn't it? And actually, uh, you know, that sort of David and Goliath metaphor, you know, as in, like, you know, the agility of a startup, the, you know, the, the slowness of Goliath in the, and the, the, you know, big corporate in that way. But, but I get to your point, I mean, how much of that then, I, I, I sometimes think the, uh, the passion from a founder, and the, the founder's story, and being 
the community around the business feeling represented by the founder and the narrative around the founder is actually a critical part of, you know, the first five years of any business in that way. And, and to be honest with you, actually, if you go back to, I, I felt like this is something that all the big banks kind of forget is that there was probably a few people who got together with a good idea to solve a community problem. And then 300 years later or whatever, they just got carried away, you know? So it's like the, the, the origin of most organizations is similar to that. But the first X many thousand customers, that's what gets you that that structure, isn't it? So, but do you think, I guess to play the flip of that and you say, look, you know, you can do things that Chase can't do. Um, actually, do you think then the future of financial services is much more bespoke suits than it is, you know, things off the rack? Because, you know, actually when you look at across, you know, any country, the US, you know, specifically because we're talking about it here, but but actually the the ability to serve specific communities to to really understand the pain points and the problems and to to really be for certain types of people that that almost um you know exclusive as you say like you just want green people and it's like great we're going to serve green people and it's like okay well that deep and actually we've seen things like daylight for lgbtq would be really successful because of you know really understanding particular problems and and actually how to solve them is that the is that the future, do you think, of financial services? Yeah, I think yes and no. I think yes, because Daylight, if you're talking LBTQIA, if you're talking um, Kinley, which is their Black banking for Black-owned, which I, I know is, is also part of the Visa family, um, there's definitely groups that are saying, hey, our bank is for this group of people. And to say that that will not work, I think we've seen we've seen success from daylight. So we know that it works. I think it's no different from, I think 10 years ago, if you compare that as an analogy to the entertainment world or the streaming world, if you say one day we're not going to use cable and instead you have to subscribe to every single different thing that you want. I have to only subscribe to Disney. I only subscribe to ESPN. I only, because only fans of sports is going to go to ESPN. I no longer have to do all of cable. Um, I think it works. I think on the flip side of that, though, you have people who want to feel inclusive in all of it. And I don't want I want to feel like I got all of it. I don't want to feel like it's just for this group. I want to feel like I'm getting a, a little bit of all of it in one place. And so you're, you're never going to satisfy everybody. Somebody's going to be OK with only banking with daylight because they only want to bank with people who they feel understand them and are like them. And then you're going to find somebody else who is also of that community, but says, I want to bank with the with the bank that I get to be in the midst of everybody. I don't want to feel like I'm just with my group. I want to be in the middle of everybody. So yes and no, it's going to come down to the person. But I do think that those banks or financial services that are specific to a group will also be able to find ways to thrive because there are people who want just that. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I think there's room um, and, a, and a, a, a growth path for both types of entities. I think you'll continue to see fintechs that are innovating um, to solve very specific problems for very specific communities. And then those individuals who might get their needs met um, with their fintech may not get everything they need and then, or maybe they have a problem that gets solved. Um, maybe they start to build credit um, in, in an environment where they otherwise wouldn't have been able to. And that FinTech enabled them to build credit and now they're graduating 
to a more mainstream credit-oriented product served to them by a traditional bank. Um, so, I mean, I think it's Greenfield. The, 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 the runway is long, and there's lots of room for many players and lots of problems to solve. Um, one of the things that, you know, on our inclusive client partnership team that we observe and, and we think we understand a little bit when we talk to fintech founders, and in particular, founders who are minorities, is the struggle for financing, for, for raising capital. So, Sheena, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit about your personal experience in, in raising funds um, to help build your business and, and whether or not you, you, you sort of see you, you're experiencing struggles that might look a little different than a, than a traditional fintech. Yeah. Um, well, it's been different in different rounds because our, our very first round, which I, was our pre-seed round, was all about unbanked and underbanked, which is, of course, now we've made a shift to, to be more of a, of a wide net ecosystem. Um, but when we were raising for unbanked and underbanked, it was ex- it started out extremely hard. I'll, just, I'll be 100% honest. And I kind of spoke to it earlier where people, a lot of our investors were saying, oh, that market is not big enough. Um, there's no money in that market. Uh, you know, this is something you should be looking at from an international perspective, not a more, not necessarily domestic perspective. And then there's also the the point of, I think no matter what I am pitching with Capway, um, I'm a numbers person. Data doesn't lie. Black women in the U.S., well, internationally, it doesn't matter the world. We receive less than 1% of VC dollars. Um, and that number has not changed. We have yet to get over 1%, even in even in 2021, when I feel like investors was literally like just throwing money at anything they walked by. We still yet came in under less than 1%, um, which says a lot. And so it has been hard. There's also not a lot of women in fintech in general, and there's definitely not a lot of black women in fintech. And so every time I walk into that room, my back is against the wall. Um, there's one thing to be a unicorn and say, oh, this is different. I want to take a, a glance. There's another thing to actually bet, you know, $10 million, $20 million because it just, it just doesn't happen. I have, I mean, we did Y Combinator, which is the number one accelerator in the world. And I looked to my left and my right of people who started fintech companies pre-product and was walking away with $10 and $20 million. And I was struggling for two. Like even fundraising now is we just signed one of the biggest partnerships that I would argue against a lot of people that have signed this year and or the last probably since 2022 since the struggle. And yet we still struggle to raise money. And that's just my reality. I tell my team that. It is shocking. It is shocking to me. No, I, I mean, I, it's unfortunate. But when people come, to, when people, when I hire people at Capway, I'm very transparent as a founder. And I say, listen, there's probably going to be times that I don't know if we're going to make payroll, I mean, I'm very frugal, so we will, but I'm going to struggle and I'm going to have to step away more often as a founder to be in fundraising mode than if you were to probably go to a fintech that was founded by a white male from Stanford, because I'm probably more going to be in, in these first four or five years. It's going to be in constant fundraising mode because that's the reality. And so if you're willing to be with us, I want you. But if not, I understand. I, I've seen, thank you for being so open about that. Um, I, I think I've started to see an emergence of more funds that are either 
uh, minority led or specifically focusing on trying to find investments for minority led companies and fintechs in particular are you seeing enough of those companies or are you are they you know are, are they maybe not as effective they're not investing in your type of business like i guess i'm trying to understand like there seems to be some money out there um but like where's it going so there, there is, there's a lot of, there are, no, maybe a lot, it's not the right word, but there are numerous funds that are coming up that are saying we're investing only in minorities or only in women. Um, the problem is, and the reality of that problem is, and I use backstage capital as an example because I love Arlen. Arlen is, is on our cap table. But even when Arlen made all that noise and she got her fund, she raised, a tw- I, don't, I can't remember how much her fund was. I think it was like a $5 million fund. So she's trying to stretch out $25,000 checks to like a, a thousand black founders that are coming to her. So her fund was about, was around black and brown founders and LBTQIA. And so you got to imagine how many founders who fit that, that couldn't find money anywhere else that are like just scratching. And she's only has $5 million. So it's really hard to get that money out. Most funds that I've seen, they don't have enough money. Exactly. The funds exist, but they're like $2 million funds, $5 million funds. And in the world of fintech, for those who are even interested in the world of fintech, it costs a lot of money to run a fintech because you either have processing fees, you got your sponsor bank, you have have all these minimums, you have to be able to have compliance, you got to have, there's so many things that even to run a fintech, that it takes so much money that it's literally you can't, regulatory says you have to have a compliance officer. You have to have X, Y, Z. You're spending a million dollars almost just to literally run the regulated portion of what it takes. So if I'm raising $2 million, I'm right back in fundraising mode because a million just went out to the back end. That's not even including acquisition. So that's the problem. Yeah. I think that sort of goes back to the point I was sort of trying to make earlier on. It's like actually... It needs to be going beyond marketing. Like actually, you know, if you got if there's a hundred million that people are putting into something and they take five million of it and isolate it for you know, uh, you know, for various different causes in various different you know whether it's uh, black or whether it's female or, or whatever that they're. I mean, it, it feels like marketing. It doesn't feel like it's. I, I feel like it's almost solving the wrong problem. Actually, the whole fund should be inclusive, and therefore we should be looking for an element of equality across all of those things, rather than a dispensation on the side of it to to get to it. But I mean, that, that's it. it uh, adds a level of pressure, as you say, Sheena, in terms of it's pretty hard to run a startup anyway. Uh, having to spend fifty percent of your life trying to find funding for it, uh, it doesn't make it any easier to to make it successful. But but I think going back to your point that you made earlier on as well, like look, this is a numbers game. Like actually, this business case well and truly stacks up when it when you start looking at the 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 numbers behind it and beyond that the the good that you can do for for so many communities by by doing good in that sense so you know it feels like actually people people might uh, you know have a certain amount of prejudice in in terms of actually where they spend their money but capitalists at some point should figure out that they can make quite a lot of money by by serving everybody in that way but uh, I'm afraid we we are uh, timing out so we are going to have to wrap up this uh, this week's edition though of fintech insider focus uh, in association with visa thank you so much to the panel for joining me where can people learn a little bit more about you and your companies start with you Aaron 
Yeah, and I would just say, um, just on the topic of inclusion, I'd encourage folks to go to Visa.com along with the search word inclusion. Very, very good. And if you're uh, l- looking for uh, your company, Sheena, or, or to invest potentially in your company, there's a lot of people, a lot of investors that listen to this as well. You know, like that's not a, good, not a bad shout. Like uh, get it all out there. Where, uh, where can people learn about more about your company? Uh, go to capway.com. That's C-A-P-W-A-Y.com. Very, very cool. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you love what you've heard, then subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps us make it better and helps other people find the show as well. For more on this discussion, look out for the next episode of FinTech Insider Focus in two weeks' time. Thank you very much, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.